I turn your attention this morning to the book of Luke chapter 24 and verse 47. Uh, the book of Luke chapter 24 and verse 47. And we're reading down through uh, verse 49. You're welcome to stand uh, with us if you'd like. If, if not, that's okay as well. Luke 24, 47. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Everybody say, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. I'd like to speak this morning for a few minutes on this subject, the home front. Would you say that with me today? The home front. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. The first part of the book of Acts deals with the issue of the identity of Christ, the multiple layers of evidence that supports who Jesus is, and the opposition to that evidence by the Sanhedrin. The second part of the book of Acts, beginning in Acts chapter 6, deals with the nature of the gospel, the worship and the witness of this New Testament church. And one exciting part of this section is how the gospel gets to Africa through this man from Ethiopia that had come to Jerusalem to worship. He's able to get his hands on a transcript of Isaiah. And I'm not sure exactly how he did that, but I'm so glad that he did. Because, ladies and gentlemen, when you really get your hands on the Word of God, that's when you find truth. If he had only been directed by the Sanhedrin or, or by the uh, temple as to where exactly he could learn about who this Jesus is, he would have never been able to receive the truth. I don't know if he found it in some dusty bookstore or what, but he got his hands on the Isaiah manuscript. And as he was reading about those prophecies, riding home in his chariot, the Lord was working on the other side because that's how God does when you've got a hungry heart. God will put you in touch with people that will share with you the truth of the gospel. He takes Philip right out of a red-hot revival in the city of Samaria and puts him right there on that, on that dusty trail in the Gaza Strip and he sees him come by and he's reading that transcript of Isaiah Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I, except somebody would show me. He invites him up in his chariot. He starts to explain to him about who Jesus is. And I'm going to tell you what, it just got in his heart right there. He couldn't wait. He said, I got to be baptized. Here's water. They came upon an oasis in the middle of the desert. What doth hinder me? He said, if you believe, we can be baptized right now. He commanded the chariot to stand still. He went down in the water and was baptized in Jesus' name, and ladies and gentlemen, it didn't end there. He took the gospel back to Ethiopia, and they had revival in Africa. They're still having revival in Africa. And the gospel just kept spreading. This literally lays the groundwork for the gospel going to Samaria in the uttermost part of the earth. In the same chapter, in Acts chapter 8, we read how the gospel just starts to spread. This starts a, a new section of the book of Acts that takes the gospel to the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 9, Paul is converted to Christianity and takes the gospel to Europe. And then Peter tells the uh, household of Cornelius, who was a Roman centurion, Acts chapter 10, 
the truth as to who Jesus is. And as the word is going forth, the Holy Ghost falls on them. And he looks to these Jews that have traveled with him who still can't believe that anybody other than a Jew could be saved. He said, they've received the Holy Ghost as well as me. Can any man forbid them to be baptized? What could they say? And they baptized them in Jesus' name. And then in Acts chapter 12, they were called Christians first at Antioch. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the gospel is spreading like wildfire. And the world has never been the same. But it's interesting to see how this revival began and how it was sustained. As Jesus prepared to ascend into heaven in Acts chapter 1, the disciples of Christ wanted to know if this was now the time that Jesus would restore again the kingdom to Israel. Israel had once been the greatest nation on the face of the earth, a nation that world leaders would travel for weeks on end across a desert just to see Jerusalem and to, and to see Solomon's temple, as Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, did. But now Jerusalem is it's not that powerful nation that it once was. It's just a dusty outpost on the backside of the desert, the Roman soldiers that were stationed there, they lamented the very idea that they would be stationed in Palestine. In their minds, it was the worst possible assignment. They didn't want to be there, and the nation of Israel didn't want them to be there. But the Romans had conquered that land. And so these Roman centurions, they patrolled the streets and they had total disdain of this place. They viewed these people as being wild and wooly and uncouth and uncultured. And so in the midst of all of this, that's the context. That the disciples sensing that the departure of Jesus was at hand. They thought about what it would look like without Jesus by their side every day. And that thought made them tremble. So they gathered their courage and they asked him, is this the time that you've been waiting for when you're going to restore the nation of Israel? And they got a very, very terse answer from their master. Not only is this not the time, this is not the mission. This is not about the nation of Israel. This is about the kingdom of God. To quote the King James Version, he says in Acts chapter 1 and verse 7, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. He's saying it's not for you to ask about the power that is in the hands of the Father, but you're going to receive power. When that Holy Ghost comes upon you and you're going to have power and authority to do what? To be witnesses unto me. And ladies and gentlemen, verse 8 has this key word. It says both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Everybody say both. That's important that we get that revelation. We are to be witnesses with this power of the Holy Ghost that we have. Both in Jerusalem, that's our own local church, Judea. That's our surrounding community. Samaria, that's people with special needs. And the uttermost part of the earth, that's global missions. 
He says, you are to be witnesses. And then it says this, and when he had spoken these things, what things? Verse 8, what we just read. While they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Ladies and gentlemen, this was his departing words. And this is not what you and I would probably say to our loved ones upon departure. Not, I love you. I'm going to miss you. We'll be in touch. I sure have enjoyed these three and a half years that we've had together. He says, you're to be witnesses. And disappears in a cloud. I don't know about you, but at the airport, I see a lot of goodbyes. And it's usually a lot of hugging and sometimes kissing and, and a lot of well wishes from loved ones. And, and this message from Christ is very much different from that. Basically, here's what he's saying. You're in a war. Your mission is to save the world. I'm going to give you the necessary tools to accomplish the task and start at home. And he lifts up and goes into heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, that mission has not changed in 2,000 years. May 10th, 1940, dawned bright and clear across Western Europe. Then suddenly, with a whine accelerating to a scream, swarms of German Stuka dive bombers swooped out of the skies over Holland and Belgium and unloaded their bombs. The skies turned from blue to white as thousands of parachutes opened and German paratroopers descended to earth to seize key bridges and installations. On May 14th, hundreds of German tanks, yea, even thousands, pushed deep into French territory with drill-like precision, marching toward Paris. Hitler's Blitzkrieg, a mechanized tidal wave of planes and tanks and armored cars sweeping aside everything that's in its path. Winston Churchill had been Prime Minister of England less than five days when he was awakened at 7 a.m. by his French counterpart who unequivocally stated and declared with panic, we have been defeated! Paul Reynaud said in English, we are beaten, we have lost the battle! Churchill rubbed his eyes but said nothing. Churchill flew to Paris that day to see what could be salvaged, but not before sending a telegram across the Atlantic to the White House. And Franklin D. Roosevelt, our president, it read in part, and I quote, You are no doubt aware the scene has darkened swiftly. If necessary, we shall continue the war alone. And we're not afraid of that. But I trust you realize, Mr. President, that the voice and force of the United States may count for nothing if they are withheld too long. The telegram seemed to burn a hole in his desk in the Oval Office as Roosevelt drummed his fingers on his desk and thought. The stakes were high. If France falls and then possibly Britain, the entire balance of power in the world would change. 
the difficulty that Roosevelt faced at home was that America was still trying to recover from the Depression and the First World War. And they had no stomach for injecting themselves into what many considered to be a European conflict. When Roosevelt had taken office in 1933, America had been decimated economically. Unemployment had been at 25%. Industrial production had fallen by a third and one half of the nation's wealth had been wiped out. And can I say again today, ladies and gentlemen, that can happen again in one day. So don't get too comfortable. The average annual salary in America was $1,500. That's $125 a month. And most homes did not have indoor bathrooms. Roosevelt's job had been tackling bread lines and closed factories and a budget that was out of balance by $2.5 billion. Dabbling in foreign affairs had seemed to be just a distraction. So our military had gone from being the fourth biggest in the world to being 18th, just behind Romania and just ahead of tiny little Holland. That's where America was. By 1939, the Army Air Corps, which was the forerunner to the U.S. Air Force, had only about 1,700 planes, including fighters and trainers, and they were all badly in need of repair. Meanwhile, Germany had 8,500 planes and the first jets. At one point, Brigadier General George Patton, who had been put in charge of the Army 2nd Armored Brigade in Fort Benning, Georgia, he needed bolts and nuts to hold together the 325 tanks that we had compared to Germany's more than 2,000 at the time. He asked the quartermaster for the necessary parts and they never reached him. Patton said, how are we going to keep these tanks going? Where's the repairs? Where's the supplies? In desperation, General Patton ordered them with his own money from a Sears and Roebuck catalog. It's a true story. Leading to this crisis, Congress had passed two neutrality acts, one in 1935 and one in 1936 that prohibited American companies from selling any war equipment to any country in an armed conflict. It also unleashed numerous committees and investigations that forced American companies into a survival mode. Great American companies like General Electric and General Motors and Boeing and DuPont were labeled merchants of death because they produced war munitions in the First World War. DuPont had supplied America with gunpowder since the American Revolutionary War. And now they were under threats to nationalize all of the American armaments. So DuPont slashed their munitions, making divisions to less than 2% of operations. Many of the CEOs now face charges and investigations as America turned hostile to war or anything that related to war. Bill Boeing was so disgusted that he quit the company that he had founded in 1917 and still bears his name. And his partner, Phil Johnson, moved to Canada and started a small airline company that eventually became Air Canada. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Boeing rebounded. And they were making B-17s and B-24s, and I don't know if we would have won the war without them. But Roosevelt now found himself between a country that did not want a war 
and an evil, maniacal dictator named Adolf Hitler who was determined to conquer the world and was well on his way with a military that was steamrolling Europe. Ladies and gentlemen, I rise this morning to tell you that we face a similar dilemma in 2017, spiritually speaking. We have a country that is in love with neutrality and tolerance. We have a culture that despises anything or anybody that stands for the absolute, unequivocal declaration of biblical principles. And on the other side, we have an evil, maniacal killer called sin that is steamrolling humanity. And you can pass all the neutrality acts that you want. You can plant flowers and you can bury your head in the sand and pretend that sin is too far away from your borders to affect you. But ladies and gentlemen, sin is not impressed with our passivity. You and I have got to take a stand and say we'll fight them on the beaches. We'll fight them on the streets. We'll fight them on the shores. But we will not give up. As America vacillates in between this dilemma, Hitler marches on, tells his advisors, I saw the Americans at Munich, referring to the Olympic Games, and they are worms. That was Hitler's exact quote. Upon the declaration of Roosevelt, that America, who I remind you, only had 1,700 planes and they were all in desperate need of repair. But that man in a wheelchair, because polio had eaten up his legs, would get in front of that radio mic and he'd have his fireside chats. And he said, we're going to fire up the assembly lines on the home front. And I believe that we can be producing 50,000 planes a year when we only had 1,700. Hitler laughs and calls it a fantasy. He proclaims, what is America but beauty queens, millionaires, ridiculous music, and Hollywood? He was about to find out. I don't know how the enemy has tried to intimidate you. Perhaps by overwhelming you with numbers and a show of force that makes victory look impossible. But just as Hitler and Japan underestimated the resolve of the American people, the enemy of your soul has underestimated the determination of God's people. We're not going to give up on anybody. We're not going to give up on our children that are not saved and in this building today. We're not going to give up on unsaved spouses. We're not going to give up on unsaved friends. Everybody has a right to hear this gospel. But I stand today to tell you we must not wait until the enemy is at our doorstep. We need to declare war now on the home front. We will fight for our homes and our families. We will fight for our faith and our values. And it must begin in Jerusalem. I'm thankful for over 3,000 people that we saw receive the Holy Ghost in Malawi. 
I'm thankful for the breakthrough that we had in Haiti in 2017. I'm thankful for the orphanages and the medical clinics and all that's going on overseas. But ladies and gentlemen, none of it would be happening if there wasn't an army on the home front and churches like the First Pentecostal Church in Palm Bay that says we believe in the mission. We believe in the cause. And it begins in Jerusalem. Every time we invest in a young person in Bible quizzing, we are taking the battle to the enemy. I love this picture. This was just a few weeks ago. As 10, 10 brand new children that have never held a buzzer in their hand or memorized a verse said, we want to be Bible quizzers. We're not waiting until they're hooked on drugs and hating life. We're starting now and taking the battle to the enemy. Every time we give to support global missions, we're not waiting until we're fighting for our own salvation. We start now on the home front to invest in somebody else being saved that we have never met before. Ladies and gentlemen, the war did not begin for America on December 7th, 1941, when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. It began back in May of 1940 with these telegrams coming from Churchill to Roosevelt. When we as a nation started making some changes in our priorities as a nation, Army Chief of Staff General George Marshall stood in Roosevelt's office and squared his shoulders and said, and I quote, Mr. President, if five German divisions landed anywhere on the coast of the United States, they could go anywhere in this country they wished. We simply do not have enough soldiers, enough tanks, enough planes, enough guns to stop them. If you don't do something, Marshall concluded, and do it right now, I don't know what is going to happen to this country. Roosevelt was convinced because within two hours of that conversation, he sent an urgent message to Congress. And he said the 24 million appropriations that we have in our budget for the Army, I want it increased to $700 million. That's not a 100% increase. That's not a 200% increase. That's more than a 300% increase. We started changing some laws as a nation. And we started funding the production of war munitions. I know the enemy looks at you and I and says, Oh, they're just those American Christians. They're comfortable with their cars and their houses and their swimming pools. And they don't care whether there's revival in the world or not. I've come to send a message to devil and to the hell and all of his imps. And I've come to declare we recognize the enemy that we face. And we are committed to change our priorities so that indeed there is an arsenal of revival for this whole world. (laughs) 
We started as a nation funding the production of war munitions. Churchill drafted one last letter to Roosevelt on May 17th. In it, he warned that if Britain lost the war, it might mean that Germany would seize the Royal Navy, which was the single greatest armed force in the world. He says, and I quote, I could not answer for my successors, he wrote, who in utter despair and helplessness would have to accommodate themselves to the German will. In other words, Churchill was saying, if Britain lost, Roosevelt would find himself facing a German fleet large enough to patrol in force right off of America's Atlantic shore. We could not afford to hide behind the false security of our ocean borders. And ladies and gentlemen, I say to you today, we cannot afford to wait until the enemy is on the beaches of our mind and our hearts and attacking our marriages and our homes and our own well-being, our own thinking, our own children and our own family. We must start now in Jerusalem on the home front and we've got to change our thinking. We've got to shift our thinking from locally to globally. We've got to change our thinking from security and start embracing sacrifice. We give and we go because we recognize that the battle on the front lines can only be won when the home front is fully engaged in the conflict. When the home front is fully engaged in the conflict. The revival in Malawi, Madagascar, Africa, the Amazon, it's a direct result of the home front funding the fight. And every time we give and we go to build an orphanage or a Bible school or a medical school, we're funding the war on poverty and famine. And in so doing, we are protecting our own family on the home front. It has been said, and I'll talk more about this next week, we're going to talk about the vision of our church and what all God's going to be doing in the next couple of years. But can I tell you that if we don't get this right today in our commitment to give to others, all the things that we dream about here will not happen unless we get this right today, right now. America changed. We outproduced Germany and Japan on the home front 10 to 1. We had to fight in the jungles of the South Pacific and the trenches of European soil, and we lost too many good men and women. But on the home front, the support and production was unlike anything the world had ever seen. And in the end, Japan and Germany were brought to their knees with unconditional surrenders. See all those faces of all those people there? I don't know if that's a B-17 or a B-24 behind them. They've all posed for that picture because they've produced 5,000 of them. And most likely, this being the early 40s, most likely all of those faces that you see are probably all dead. And probably none of those faces, their families when they perished, were invited to be buried in Arlington Cemetery. But I tell you today, we would not have won the war without these people right here on the assembly lines in America, on the home front. And the gospel must first be published among all nations, Mark chapter 13 and verse 10 says. Everything in the timepiece of heaven is predicated on the gospel being preached in all nations. In Bangladesh, 
in Bogota, in Namibia, in Nairobi. It is the revelation and the funding of the mission that changes the world and sets the captives free. Ladies and gentlemen, the church in Jerusalem not only survived, but thrived because of their link to the spreading of the gospel to the whole world. And sometimes it seems hard to believe, even in our own thinking. I mean, whenever they told Abraham and Sarah that there was going to be a great nation, it would be as the sand of the sea and it would be as the stars of the sky. And they look around and they don't even have any children. And when two angels appear, tell them, Sarah, you're going to have a baby. She laughs. (laughs) Just another preacher with a positive message. (laughs) Right. But the reality is, I'm nearly a hundred years old. And she got in the back of the tent and kind of snickered a little bit. They were like, we heard that. You're going to make a great nation, but can I tell you what? It's going to start right here on the home front. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, it is this spiritual principle that has not changed in 2,000 years. It all started at Jerusalem. And ladies and gentlemen, it's not by accident that it's all going to end in new Jerusalem. It is both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Both. Church, community, global. It's the front lines and the home front. And if we don't take the battle to the enemy, they attack us on our own shores. They bomb our buildings on 9-11 and our Navy sitting in the harbors of Pearl Harbor. If we don't attack the enemy in the drug rehab centers and orphanages and prisons and and in poverty-stricken, AIDS-infested third world countries, then we will be attacked right here in our homes in suburban America in our churches with our children and our marriages. We will win this spiritual war, ladies and gentlemen, on the home front. We will build an arsenal of revival. We will outgive. We will outpray. And we will outsend. We have done it before. And we can do it again. I said we can do it again. I'll talk more about this as we go into next week. But I want to, right now, ask every single individual that's in this building. We have passed these books out to you four weeks ago. We've asked you to be in prayer as to what God would put upon your heart to give. This is one time of the year when we do this. We take commitments. And then all next year, we give out of this GO program. This goes to support everything outside. It doesn't do anything in terms of paying utilities, bills. This is not tithe. Tithe is not a gift. That's returning what already belongs to God. This is apart from paying our tithes. This is simply us saying, we believe in the cause, we believe our mandate is to be a part of the revival that's happening in all the world, and we want to give and be a part of it. I'm going to ask everybody that's in this building today, if you'll take out this book, and if you'll turn to the back of the book, there's a little, there's a little pamphlet right here in the back, and it's perforated, you can just tear this out. And this is for everybody, this is not just for adults, this is for young people, children, our boys get involved in this. They did a fireworks tent last 
New Year's Eve so they could pay their pledge. And if you'll take this out, if you need a pen, would you raise your hand? If you're like me, you can never find a pen, raise your hand. I've even asked the ushers to bring pens. I don't want anybody to have any excuses. Those of you that are watching by internet, uh, you can jump in and be a part of this. You can give online. All you got to do is just say it's for go. And we're going to take our monthly pledges for the year 2018. So if you'll take this out right here, and you'll take out this little envelope. What we're going to do is fill out this card. We're going to take it and put it in this envelope. And this is your pledge of what you want to do. And I'm going to ask you to do this. Those of you that have committed to giving last year, I'm going to ask you that you will not only commit to give this year, but by faith, I want you to commit an increase of 10 or 20%. I'm going to do it. I'm going to start. It's got to start in Jerusalem, and it's got to start with the pastor. Last year, I gave $1,000 a month, and I was able to do it all up front. This year, I'm not going to be able to do it all up front. I've lived too high on the hog. I'm going to have to do it monthly. <laughs> but I do commit to giving $1,200 a month. Does anybody else want to join me in doing $1,200? Bishop Myers. Bishop Myers and I and Brother Derek Hayes are going to do $1,200 a month. Anybody else? We got to send tanks and airplanes. We can't send, you know, paper guns over there. <laughs> Brother Jimmy Chapman's not here. But I know he would want to be number one, so I'm going to commit for him $1,500 a month. Brother Jimmy Chapman's going to give $1,500 a month. He's been out in Texas setting houses for FEMA. He's got that government money. He needs to give it to missions. $1,500 a month is what Brother Jimmy Chapman's going to be giving. If you have some of your friends who are not here today, feel free to fill out a card for them. These are the guys. These are the people that are on the front lines right here. We support 85 missionaries. Now, folks, I want to remind you. I told you this four weeks ago, but I want to remind you. When people go, when the men go on building trips, when the young people go, even when I take my family, everybody pays their own way. This money doesn't go to fund pastors' trips. I hope everybody understands that. We all pay our own way. This has to do with what we give to these individuals. The Boys Ranch, Tubalo Children's Mansion, Bible Quizzing, Missionaries. These are the people that are on the front lines, and these are the people that I believe together at home we can make a difference and put tanks, and you understand what I'm using with that analogy? We're not actually sending a tank over there, although we do give them a new vehicle. But whatever it costs, you know, when they, when they contacted us from Uganda and said we're trying to buy a, a Bible school in Uganda, and they've had tremendous revival over there, and Brother Boyd, Brother uh, Sims is on his way over there, one of the our friends at Pastors in Tallahassee serves on the board with us, Florida District. He's on his way over there. We first went over there together a number of years ago and saw an incredible revival. Brother Tolstad, who's the missionary in Uganda, I've never seen it so bad, folks. I've told you about it. I watched kids go around all day with buckets just looking for clean water, digging water out of little puddles in the, in the mud. And uh, I, I've never, but revival like crazy. They said, we've got a chance to build a Bible school. And I said, Let's do it. Whatever they needed money for, we went to our GO budget. They said, we need this amount of money. We were able to be a substantial part of that. Now, why were we able to do that? Because, ladies and gentlemen, this church believes what I preached to you this morning. We're not just sending chump change overseas. This church, out of 4,000, if I can just brag on you for a moment, 
over 4,000 churches in the United Pentecostal Church International, and this church was seventh in the nation. You're making a difference in the world. Every time you read about people getting the Holy Ghost overseas, I want you to know I'm a part of that. We're winning the war on the front lines because of what's happening right here on the home front in Palm Bay, Florida. Come on, give yourself a big hand. Thank you, Lord. So I want you to take out this, uh, this little pamphlet right here, and I want you to fill it out. We're going to pray, because I know this is, a, this is an act of faith. This is an act of sacrifice. This is not something you just do because you feel good. This is something that requires a spiritual decision. That's one reason why we passed these books out four weeks ago. This is why I wanted you to take it and pray about it and think about it. And I want you to take this and I want you to fill this out based upon the faith that God has put in your hearts. It may, you may do something today that makes absolutely no sense. Just like Churchill, just like Roosevelt saying, we're going to make 50,000 planes a year. I mean, they couldn't, they couldn't hardly believe that was even realistic. But those pictures that were up there of those people in that, uh, that Boeing factory kicking out B-17s and B-24 bombers, they were doing a bomber a day was coming out of that plant. I'm going to tell you what, folks. When you put your mind to something, when God's people get together and agree, anything is possible. What is a soul worth? I mean, you can't even put a dollar value on it. But we've got to start here at Jerusalem. So fill this out, and I'm going to ask each of you if you would join us in prayer. And let's just say, God, we want this to be a spiritual decision, and we want you to just increase our faith to believe you for the impossible. And give us the courage to step out in faith. Would you bow your heads and pray right now? Lord, in the name of Jesus, I thank you, Lord, that you've allowed us to be a part. I know, Lord, that you have given this as our mandate. We were going to receive the power of the Holy Ghost, and we're so thankful for that. But there was a reason why you gave us your spirit. So that we would be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part of the earth. You've blessed us in our own home. You've blessed us in our church. You've blessed us in our own community. You've certainly blessed this nation of America. And God, we understand there's a responsibility that goes with us. And I'm asking you, Lord, to give your people courage and to give your people faith to believe you for the impossible. Help us, God, to step out and say, Lord, every gift cometh down from the Father of lights. So we do it, Lord, because your word has instructed us to. We ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ. Everybody said amen. amen. Would you fill out your card right now when you have it all filled out? All you got to do is just fold it in half like that. And then just put it inside this little envelope. And that way you can make sure that you've got uh, privacy with your commitment. Nobody's going to see these. We're not going to put them all up on the screens and everybody see who's given what. This is just goes to, I will see it, Sister Richie and uh, our uh, brother Tim Jenkins, our corporate secretary, that enter all of these into the books. They're the ones that see this. This is not something that's common knowledge, but you know who does see it is God. Amen. And then if you want to just seal it, and uh, the ushers are going to come. We're going to wait upon you right now, and I'm going to ask you just to put these cards uh, in the uh, offering plate. And you say, well, Pastor, I'd like to think about it a little bit. If you think about it, it's going to get lost in all the Christmas stuff. You've had four weeks. <laughs> just, just, put it, just put it in the offering plate. Amen. And uh, God will take it, and he will honor it. Amen. And if you can't make your pledge, well, guess what? We're not a collection agency. It's between you and God. You'll do the very best you can. 
But if you'll step out in faith, I believe that God will take this and honor it and we'll take the battle to the enemy on the foreign shores. How many of you believe that? You believe that? That's what God's plan is. So we're going to do this right now. We're just going to wait upon you. They're going to pass these globes around. And again, this is just your commitment for 2018. You won't actually start giving on this commitment until the 1st of January 2018. So we're going to pass, the, pass these plates around and then after they've all been collected, we're going to give you a chance to come down to the altar. But I want to give you a chance to take care of this first. I know that tonight we have a banquet and we're not going to actually have a service here. Uh, so for all of you that need prayer today that want to come to the altar, we're going to give you an opportunity to do that. But it's important for us to recognize that this is a part of what makes the gospel successful in all the world. It's you and I standing shoulder to shoulder and doing our part. God bless you as you pass in your commitment forms right now in Jesus' name. supernatural work in your life whether it's for you for your family for loved ones but if you need God to touch your body today or you need God to touch your finances if you need God to touch your emotions or there may be something that you've been battling with and you said I just want to turn it over and put it in the hands of the Lord today I want you to invite you to come forward ministers will pray with you down here at this altar amen if you're good to go God bless you we'll see you tonight at the Christmas banquet thank you for being here today the Lord go with you and bless you in Jesus' name. I will not give up. I will not. Give up. 